You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Thursday, and in these episodes, we focus on one of two things. We'll either be sharing one of our favorite and most actionable talks from a Flip My Funnel event, or you'll hear Sangram and someone from the Terminus team discuss how they're getting better in a specific functional area of Terminus's business. And remember, like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. All right, David, thank you for being on the show today. It's uh, great to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be on the show. Sure. All right. Now, David, you have a pretty legendary background in the startup space, but there's probably a chance that maybe a listener or two out there isn't familiar with your story, what you're up to at Drift. So just to start things off, can you give us a little bit of your backstory and um, what you're up to at Drift these days? Sure. I'll I'll try to make it quick because I have a long history. I've been, uh, Drift is my current company and my the fifth company that I started, but I've been a part of several other startups. And, um, you know, I, I started, I started at the beginning of the, of the commercial internet with, and did a couple of startups back then. And then I started my own company called compete in 2000. So 19 years ago now, and then started a series of companies after that sold them all. Uh, the last company before drift was called performable. I sold that to company that was uh, called HubSpot. And I went with the entire team, we went to HubSpot and uh, rebuilt the product and, and uh, rebuilt the, that entire organization. And so like I went there when we were 200 people and I left when we IPO'd and we were probably like 1200 people. I was chief product officer and I ran product engineering design, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then I left after the IPO to start Drift. And Drift is Basically, we, think we created this category called conversational marketing. And the idea is that uh, we help largely B2B businesses, although there are, we help others too, have conversations on their website with their customers and their prospects. And we do that 24-7, 365 uh, to help them accelerate sales and provide better customer experiences. Cool. Now, I don't think you mentioned this, but Drift is either the or one of the most fastest growing uh, B2B tech startups of all time. Is that right? That, that is right. We were kind of obsessive on benchmarking. And so I learned that at HubSpot, we benchmarked a lot. So we've been benchmarking since the beginning. And so like, we're not faster than Slack. So who went I today, by the way, but you know, compared to like the others like HubSpot and Zendesk and Salesforce and all those things, all those kind of companies, legendary companies, we are lucky to, uh, so far, I've been growing faster than any of those. That's great. Now, I appreciate you being uh, humble enough not to bring that up in, unless I asked about it. But um, so I, I do want to ask you just one kind of personal question before we get into to category design. So you're the kind of startup CEO that, you know, is probably the envy of a, of a lot of people out there. Like you've, you've built and you've brought all these companies to, uh, to acquisition, like tremendous growth, tremendous scale. And and so in many ways, you're, you're kind of like, uh, you know, in churches, they have like living saints. <laughs> I'm, I'm so, yeah. so like, you're like this living, like if there's a B2B marketing hall of fame, like whenever that's created, David Cancel is going to get in there right away. Um, but is that how you see yourself or just like, how do you look at yourself? What are your own strengths and weaknesses? Quite, quite the opposite. I feel like, you know, that I haven't done anything yet. And uh, I'm, 
super hard on myself, harder than anyone, which is good because like um, no one, no criticism that I get comes near to how hard I am on myself. And I, I just don't think I have done that much so far. I've been lucky and kind of obsessed about what I do and like everything has been a result of that. And so like, I, I just think of myself as a student and along the way, I try to like share some of the stuff that I've learned mostly through pain. And my goal is like to help maybe avoid some people, maybe some of the listeners on here to avoid some of the pain that I went through because, you know, pain is the, is a great teacher, but like, uh, there are other ways to learn beyond pain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into that a little bit. Hopefully I won't dig up too much pain, but I do want to hear about some of the successes and, and some of the challenges that you guys have been through at, at Drift. But before we get into that, I, I want to ask you a question. I've asked a few other folks on the idea of, of category creation and category design, which is just how do you define category design in general? What does that mean to you? Uh, it's a good question. We became obsessed, and I'll go into later, about category design. You know, we stumbled on a book by Chris Lockhead, who wrote the book called Play Bigger, and, uh, which is all about category design. And we stumbled upon that in the office of one of our investors, Sequoia Capital. And uh, we kind of followed it to a T. And for us, it mattered because of the phase in the market that we're in, which I can go into it if you're interested. But for us, it was like about category design was about uh, understanding who our customer is and where in their lives do we play? Like, where do we live in their lives? And how do we communicate to that customer? And how do we create a frame and a narrative and a story that helps them understand uh, how we help them in their day to day. So that's, that's interesting because you were at HubSpot prior to, mm -hmm. to Drift, right? Sure. And, and you mentioned coming across Christopher Lockhead's book mm -hmm. very early on in the days at Drift. Mm -hmm. So was category creation something you talked about at HubSpot? Was that on your radar or was that just what you happened to be doing, but it wasn't really like in the discussion? It was the latter. Uh, and I actually talked to Brian Halgen, who's the CEO of uh, HubSpot and founder last week in London, uh, he did a fireside chat at one of our events. And, uh, and I asked him that exact question because I was trying to think back and say, like, we never really talked about creating a category. And as far as I can remember, it was nobody's focus or job, but we did in the category. That category was called inbound marketing. And we did. And there were a couple of decisions that kind of led to that, that all makes sense in retrospect. But, but I don't remember while I was there it being a deliberate process. But it, but it drifted, certainly sounds like it was. A hundred percent, yeah. Because we started, and the reason is that we started the company at a def very different phase in the market. So the way I think about it, I have this framework I think about, which is like that I've been creating SaaS companies for before they were called SaaS companies. Uh, before we had the category called SaaS, there was no such thing. But like, I think we've gone through three phases. We're in this third phase of SaaS. The first phase I call the, Edison phase. And that was like when Salesforce and NetSuite and a whole bunch of companies got started. And I call it the Edison phase because there we, you were mainly selling on technology and the technology was impossible to replicate. And you were mostly competing with on-prem software. So you were not competing with other SaaS people. So like your competitive set and the uh, choice that the consumer had, the customer had was very small. It was either you're going to go different on-prem, or are you going to go with this new thing, cloud, SaaS, whatever you, whatever you, uh, you want to think about it? We were calling it ASP at that point, which is like application service providers. But anyway, that was like the Edison phase. Then at Performable and HubSpot, 
and that's when Zendesk got started, the new Relic, and all these like famous SaaS companies. I consider that the second wave, and the second wave there I call the the uh, the Ford wave, like as in the Ford Motor Company. There was really we were not competing on technology because the technology was known at that point. Like people knew how to build SaaS software. We were competing, in my opinion, in uh, based on our go-to-market models. Were you vertical SaaS, horizontal SaaS? Did you have free trial, freemium? Uh, did you have salespeople? Were they inside, outs, uh, outside salespeople? Did you have CSMs, no CSMs? Like it was all of these mechanics. And this was before uh, Jason Lemkin's blog um, and his books, you know, before SaaS or before all this stuff. Like that go-to-market data was impossible. You couldn't find it online. No one knew what lifetime value was or LGV to CAC ratios should be or like, what, how you should pay an inside sales versus DDR. Like no one knew that. So we were largely competing on that. And we kind of like taught ourselves that. And now I think we're in this third phase and I call this the Procter & Gamble phase. And this, this I'll go back to the, your question. And I think about it like, look, now in the HubSpot phase, we had a handful of direct competitors. Maybe we had five, six direct competitors. Anyone in SaaS today in this third phase has tens, hundreds, or in our case, thousands of direct competitors, thousands. And the rate at which those companies are being created are, is like nonstop, right? And now we're also competing truly for the first time ever on a global scale. And so like, so we're competing with companies all over the world who can one, replicate the technology because there's no defensibility left in that and can replicate the business models because now everyone knows and understands those mechanics and those, those things that I was talking about. So what's left? What's left is brand, right? How do you, how do you build the affinity uh, for a certain subset of customers where they will choose your product over the hundreds, if not thousands of alternatives that are in the market? And that's where storytelling, category design, and all this stuff was super important to us from day one because we were starting in a super saturated market, much like Procter & Gamble does. Like, and so that's why we studied them and said like, okay, how do you sell Tide soap for you know, 50 cents more than the alternative? when they're just soap, right? Those are commoditized goods. So we studied con uh, consumer packaged good companies as our models. Wow, that's, this is why I like talking with guys like you because you've been doing this for, I think you said 19 years. Yeah. And, and to come in with that perspective of these three phases, oh, let me break these down again. So we've got phase one, Edison, Edison. which is you competing on the technology itself. Yes. Um, so the company you created is the amazing part. Right, okay. And then you've got uh, the, the Ford phase where you're competing on the go-to-market model and these new metrics about um, lifetime value, cost of acquisition. These are being developed and tracked and understood for the first time in many cases. Yeah, and yeah. I call it the Ford model because it's basically we're, you're building factories. So how efficient is your factory versus my factory? Do you have assembly line or not assembly line? So that's the factory. Yeah, okay, okay. And then the third phase is, is Procter & Gamble where you're competing in, in a crowded market and factors like brand are really a, a primary differentiator in enabling you to stand out and get the attention you need in these crowded spaces. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I love that you mentioned Procter and Gamble because I was talking with a friend of mine a few weeks ago who works with B2B tech companies now, but he grew up or he started his career in the consumer products space actually yep. with, with PNG. Yep. And we were talking about category design and he mentioned that in that space, developing categories is is just kind of like a first order of thinking. That's where you start. 
Right, right. And then if, but, but of course in our industry in, in B2B, that's often an afterthought. And mm-hmm. in many cases, it's still kind of a new concept for many people. Yeah, but that, that, that is where massive disruption is, is happening right now because B2B, all of the companies that we can think of largely that have been in B2B software, let's say just software, but any kind of service, they've been operating in a world where the company had all the power and the company could dictate the sales process. They could dictate everything about it because the alternatives, the number of alternatives was low. The information, the information was uneven, meaning that the company had most of the information versus the buyer. But as we know, we don't live in that world now. Like the prospect has more information than the sales rep inside the company in, in most parts. And information is free, right? And, and they have ultimate choice now. So they have alternatives in the market. Again, tens, hundreds, thousands. So we live in a, in a customer-controlled world now. And most of those companies in B2B have not woken up to that fact yet. So if you look at the space, what percentage of, of companies do you think are still stuck in, I guess, the Ford era? Mm-hmm. And, and those who are like viewing things through this new lens of this you know, Procter & Gamble era? I mean, really like 99% of them, you know, 99% of the ones that we see are still stuck in that model because it's like when all, when it's like when all massive disruptions happen, Mm. the, they're stuck in that model because it's still sort of working. It's not working like it used to getting harder and harder, but it kind of still works if you try hard enough. But as you know, like when disruption happens, like it will continue to decline over time. You know, we think, if you're focused on this world of the company controls the process versus the customer, we think you'll, you'll be on the wrong side of history. Sure. Sure. So let's, let's pick up that story where we left it a few moments ago when you were telling me about finding the book play bigger and mm-hmm. light bulb going off around category design. Yeah. I'm really curious how you personally went through this new way of looking at things, because if, if I understand correctly, you, your background initially was in technology and, and product roles. Oh yeah, and, 100%. Right. And now you're you're running a company who has a great product, but you're also known really just as as much for your branding and yeah. and so yeah, so tell me how like how did that come about? How did you like what was that process like for you to understand, hey, we need to really care about branding and how, how did you go about developing the the Drift brand? Yeah, that's a good question and a good observation. I'd say, you know, it stems from I am um pretty introverted naturally, but like pretty introverted person. And so like, because of that, and obviously I've taught myself to, to be able to go do speaking and do all this kind of stuff and get comfortable in this stuff. But my default is, is to be introverted because of that. And because I was uh, English as a second language, uh, <laughs> but I actually think it stems from that. Uh, I taught myself how to speak and read English by watching television when I was a little kid. Because if there was ESL classes back then, uh, when I was a kid, I, I had never heard of them and they went around. And so like, where did you grow up, by the way? I was born in the Bronx, New York. And uh, then I grew up, we moved and I grew up largely in Queens, New York. And both of my parents emigrated here and both of them, we only spoke Spanish at home. Okay. And so I, I teach myself uh, English because of that. And because of my natural tendency to be introverted, I've always been, I've always observed people and tried to model based on that, right? And so I'm, I've been an engineer and a product person for my entire career. And then I made a switch at, when we started Drift, actually, to really understand marketing, to understand category design, to out of necessity, 
And so, which was a hard thing because I didn't come out of marketing. Obviously I've been building software for marketers. That does not make me a marketer. So what I did was to like study human behavior. I took away everything that had to do with tools, technologies, stacks, all of this kind of stuff that marketers spend all their time thinking about and talking about. Cause I knew all that stuff and I, I didn't need to learn that stuff. What I needed to understand was like, how do people make decisions? Why do they make decisions? Why do they pick A over B? And so I started to study everything from Kahneman on, you know, decision-making to cognitive biases to, you know, social psychology, like just started studying all that stuff. That eventually led me to study a very old school copywriting, which is kind of the manifestation of all that. And then really understand, okay, this is how, these are the different personality types. These are like generally how they make decisions. Okay. How do we think about that when we do storytelling? I started to study storytelling a lot, like Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and all this kind of stuff. And it was kind of like a matrix moment for me because I, I never really paid attention to all this stuff. And then all of a sudden it was like, whoa, I understand all this now. Like I can look at a piece of advertising or creative or, or category description or something. And when it works, I can like reverse engineer why it works. And it's been interesting because most marketers don't go this path, right? They go right into the tech, right into like the process, right into the doing. And, you know, I'll, I'll spend a lot, I spend endless time with marketers. I'll ask them, why do they think X or Y or Z worked in this campaign? And most can't actually tell you why it worked, right? They know it worked. They'll double down on it, but they can't understand why it works. And if you have studied social psychology and decision-making and all this stuff, it becomes pretty clear why things are working and why they wouldn't. Yeah. That's, that's great to hear. And I think it really speaks a lot to that transition you mentioned earlier with those phases with, within that Ford phase. And when everyone was kind of competing on that go to market model, a lot of the marketing literature that came out at the time, both in books and, you know, in blog posts, et cetera, was all about like tactics and measurement yeah. and uh, the technical side of marketing. And, and you mentioned like <laughs> you had to go back and read old school copywriting books. And yeah. I, that's not, and I, it's almost like because there are not a lot of like new school. No, I had, I had to read books from the 1940s and 50s, sometimes the 30s. And uh, I read a lot of books that were out of print, found a lot of books that were out of print. It, it's not an area that people think about or talk about. It's the most important part, right? Like copywriting to me is everything because it's like, it is the connection. It is like, how do you connect with someone? What is the story that you're telling them? And uh, how did they make decisions? Do you have a, a list of these books that we could mm -hmm. access and share? Yeah, I'll send you a link after. And so maybe we can put them in the show notes and uh, we'll put a list of the ones that we share. There's a list yeah. of the ones that we still don't share, but like <laughs> but there's a long, there's a long list. Your, your listeners will be dizzy with the long list. That we'll okay. Okay, great. So you, you spent some time reading about more around psychology, almost maybe you could say anthropology, just studying human behavior yeah. and you, it clicked for you that, that branding was something that mattered. Now, so when you went out to design Drift's own brand, did you guys do that internally? Did you hire a branding agency to help you with that? How did that come about? Uh, we did everything internally. We spent a lot of time, or I, I should say I spent a lot of time, and Dave Gerhardt spent a lot of time, he's our VP of marketing, trying to find an agency. Like I always had this like dream. I had always heard the stories of um, Apple and Steve Jobs working with Cloud from Shia Day and like, this whole thing. And so I was like, oh, I got to find my Lee Cloud. Like, where is this? Where is this magic thing? And 
maybe they exist, but every agency that we talked to talked to was all about exactly what you said before: tactics, you know, um, programs. This they were like so in the in that, and I could never find anyone who was focused really on storytelling and that stuff. Now I know some people who do it, and um, so I would have relied on them. But at the time, we couldn't find anyone to do it, so we we taught ourselves from scratch. Nice, nice. So in, in many ways, like you probably understand why your brand is what it is. It wasn't something that was handed down to you mm-hmm. from some other agency. I'm not saying agencies do bad work, but mm-hmm. the fact that you guys went through that process yourselves, like it's, it's probably so much more ingrained in your own DNA now than it would be otherwise. Oh, hundred uh, percent. And it was, you know, like most things that worked, it was born out of necessity. And so uh, we needed to make it happen. We couldn't find anyone to, to do it. And so we taught ourselves how to do it. Good deal. Well, you were talking about play bigger, and one of the key chapters in that book is around this idea of a, a point of view, taking the world from a certain way of looking things and and to a new way of looking things. Can you tell me how you guys developed your own point of view at Drift? Because I know you have a very strong and, and well thought out one. You know, we relied on metaphors, right, to help us do the storytelling from the very beginning. Like we were trying to understand, like how do we talk about conversational marketing in this category we want to create? Like, how do we make this easy for people to understand? And we went back to storytelling and said like, okay, let's use a metaphor and say like, let's not talk about websites and marketing and all this kind of stuff. And so we use this frame that we came up with in the beginning and we have several of them, but this was the beginning, the first one. And it was like, okay, imagine your website is a store and uh, you spend all your time as that store owner trying to get people in the store. You have billboards, you have flyers, you have uh, people, you know, advertisements, uh, people to come to the store. But when you come in the store as a customer, there's nobody in the store to help. And you look around and you want to buy something, but there's no one that will talk to you. And the, but then you notice a book on, on a table and it says, leave your name, phone number, title, uh, et cetera in this book, in this paper book. And, uh, and so you leave your name, phone number, title, et cetera, in this paper book, and then you're confused and you don't know what to do next, so you leave the store. Then one day, weeks, months later, that store calls you up and says, hey, thanks for coming to the store. We're now ready to sell you something. Would you mind coming back to the store? And you know, at this point, everyone laughs and they say, what are you talking about? And I'm like, that is everyone in B2B marketing today that is if you have whatever stack you want, Salesforce, SAP, HubSpot, you've got Marketo, you've got BDRs, SDRs, marketing ops, sales ops, you have demand gen, you have every program working perfectly. If it all worked perfectly well, which as we know, it almost never does, but let's say it did, the end experience that you would give your customers exactly the one that I just talked about in that story, does that seem broken? Right. And in this world of real time choice and on delivery, everything and, you know, on demand, everything like it seems like an insane thing. And we're like, that is the state. And as soon as we said that story to people, people were like, what? It's insane. I'm like, that's what we do every day. I love it. And I, I think that really points out why good positioning and branding for tech companies, it's not something that can be done like irrespective of, of, your, of the, your point in time of like where society is, where culture is at that time, what things have happened in the past, what, what context are people operating in? Yes. So I love how you guys didn't just say, and, and cause you could have said 
like, Hey, Drift is an amazing product. Let me tell you the 12 things we've got, <laughs> chat bots, we've got yeah. e- email drifts. We've got, you know, nobody cares about that anymore. Right. 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 And, and I, I, I saw something on LinkedIn the other day and someone had said like, Hey, we were looking at drift. We were looking at a competitor mm-hmm. and really the choice came down uh, for us based on seeing drifts team be enthusiastic about the product. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because there was some killer feature yeah. or because you had, you know, this many more reviews or this much of a better mm-hmm. rating on, you know, G2 crowd. Those things are nice to have, of course. It's exactly the Procter & Gamble phase that we talked about earlier. I think, you know, the other thing that I didn't mention in the beginning was that we had this notion when we started the company that that software, the value of software has gone to zero. Like there's no value left in software. Like uh, that most people, including myself, who build software for a living. Like I don't want to buy software. Like I'm not interested in buying software. I'm interested in like experiences and outcomes in my life. Mm-hmm. And the better the experience, the better the outcome, the more I'm willing to pay for that. And I think that's generally how people are today. And like, if it's software or AI or if it's humans or like, I don't really care like anymore. It doesn't really matter. It, what matters is this outcome and experience. And so we started with this premise from the beginning of like, let's not talk about software. We're not trying to build a software company, by the way. We think software is a means to an end, but not, not the important thing. Uh, we are trying to build this global brand. That's how we thought about ourselves in the beginning that serves a certain type of customer. And whether we serve that customer by building software or by building widgets or by building something else, it really doesn't matter as long as we serve them and give them the best experience and the outcomes that they're looking for. And I think that's the way the world is going. You know, we use, again, we use examples like to say like, what is software now? Like is when you use Uber or Lyft, is that software or is that AI? Or is that a logistics company? Or is that a bunch of cars? Or is that a bunch of humans uh, who drive those? Like, I don't know what it is. Like, and uh, probably like yourself, like, I don't really care what it is. Like, I don't need to know about software or not software. I'm like, I just know that it gives me some outcome that I want. And you can say the same for what is Amazon? What is Whole Foods? What is Airbnb? What are all these things? It really doesn't matter. Like the age of buying software, that was the age of the PC, right? The age of buying software is done. It's like those Amazon buttons you can put in your house. You, yeah. you push a button. You don't care if it's an IoT device or whether it's yeah. Bluetooth or whatever. Yeah, there was a day that we cared about it because the only people who were buying that stuff were yeah. other geeks like ourselves. Like, so you kind of cared about that. But now we sell to, to the 7 billion people around the world. Like, they don't care about that. No one's interested in that anymore. So David, do you consider yourself a marketer? Like you, you talk, you've been a marketer for all, all tw- these 20 years, but do you view yourself as a marketer? I don't know. I feel like I'm an imposter of everything. So like, I don't know, you know, imposter syndrome on everything. I feel like I'm, um, I'm, I live in between product and marketing. That's where I'm most comfortable and what I find most interesting. But probably that's the more important part, like what I find interesting because then I'll dive deep. So I find the human connection and human response intoxicating the most important thing. And the only reason that I ever got into software myself, even when I was an engineer, was because I actually hated software engineering in school. And I, I didn't like, and I built software, which at that time, you know, this would date me, like, you know, we would put on floppies or maybe later on like CD-ROMs and like, you never had any connection with the customer. You never knew if anyone actually used the software you built because it was impossible, right? But then, uh, 
in the library, uh, you know, we had early versions of Netscape and Mosaic and I built a website and early, this is like, there were no <laughs> websites back then. And there were, there were so few websites that you would put your actual email address at the bottom of each one uh, because there was no such thing as spam, right? And so someone sure. on my website, a guy in Moscow, Russia, of all places, sent me an email, which I had to answer on a terminal. This is how long ago it was. And he said, hey, man, your website's really cool. That's all he said. And he said he was from Moscow, whatever. And that was the light bulb moment for me. I was like, wow, I created something. And I had this feedback loop. Someone actually used it. And that, that has what that human connection, that human response is what got me to actually become an engineer uh, because I didn't like building software in isolation. Hmm. Yeah. And you certainly carried that thread. And throughout my whole entire career. It's like one right. thread. Yeah. Right. I mean, you go on Drift's website and it talks about like engaging with people now, which is. Yeah. It's the most meta thing ever. It's like, it's been the. Drift is like the sum of my entire professional existence. So you're, you're building a company that's creating a new category. You're, you're building a marketing team around that. I've heard different opinions on whether people consider category design a marketing exercise or, or maybe it's a business exercise. Yeah. Where do you think it falls in or, or does it matter? Probably doesn't matter, but for like four, it is definitely a business design. Well, I'll take that back. I think it does matter. I think it's a business design issue, right? And I say that, and I think it matters because it's not something that you can sprinkle on top, right? Just like branding, just like other things in marketing, like people, even demand generation, people want to like create the widget and then sprinkle some demand gen or a brand on top of it or some other thing. And so I know category design is not something you can sprinkle on top of. It has to weave through everything that you do. How do you deliver your product? How do you sell your product? How do you, how do you think about your product? How does your, your customer and your prospect think about that product? Where, where do you connect with that customer or prospect in their lives that is the right place in their life to connect with your product? Like it weaves into every single, I can't think of a department where it doesn't weave into maybe some part of finance within our team, but like every single part of the company is affected by our decisions on category design. Mm. So it's more like a, a systems approach rather than a yes. departmental approach. hundred percent, hundred percent. As you can probably tell, and because a former engineer, I'm like all about like systems and frameworks and models. And that's where I live. Like if I don't, if I, if I can't wrap like a framework, a system, a model, a mental model around it, like I can't actually understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. So, <laughs> okay. So let's, let's say it's a systems approach now marketing and among other departments has to deliver. Uh, of course. And so what do you look for? You, you guys have built a great marketing team, but what do you look for in a marketing team that's building a category? And how has that changed? I don't know if you've done hire, marketing hiring or hired for marketers. In oh, previous yeah. Roles. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. How has that evolved given this new system that you're using now? Well, we've had an interesting like phenomenon at Drift, which is we scaled from like, you know, two people, myself, and my co-founder to roughly like 250 people with only brands. And what I mean by that is that we had no one on the marketing team. I mean, the marketing team was tiny throughout all that, very tiny handful of people, uh, including Dave, who's the VP of marketing. But we were only focused on one thing, brand and category design. And, and everything that we did was in support of that. And we did things like, obviously we wrote the book called Conversational Marketing, 
we have certain type of events that we do. We basically like bet on all these weird things that other people wouldn't bet on because we thought that's obviously where the arbitrage opportunities are. It wasn't until this year, right, and uh, crossing 250 people last year where we did all the traditional marketing hiring. We didn't have anyone, we didn't have any such thing as marketing ops. We didn't have any, we didn't have a single person who owned sending even an email here. We didn't have um, demand generation. We didn't have every single thing you can think of as like being like the foundations and the beginnings of a marketing team. We didn't have any of those people. We didn't have that function. And so really? now we are, yeah, so we're, we're totally upside down. And so like now we're starting to hire for those and build those and build the, 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 the marketing team. Like we had video, we had three people doing video before we had a person who would send an email or marketing ops or demand generation. Wow. So that's, it's so interesting because I would have to imagine that, you know, any, every company has their own culture, right? And then within those sure. departments, those departments have their own culture. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you were able to build a marketing culture that was built around brand first. Yes. And then it sounds like these other practices like demand generation, marketing ops are there really to help drive the brand. Yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So we are brand first and category first. And so we started with, with brand category and communications and copywriting, all that kind of stuff. Right. But basically that type of messaging. And now we're adding demand generation. We're adding marketing ops. We're adding all those programs on the other end of the spectrum. And then what we're also standing up in between this is product marketing and the ability to synthesize that high level communication, that high level story and make sure and, and basically weave it into the rest of marketing, our demand generation programs, our content generation programs, or like everything that you would think about, like how do we weave that same story through everything? We are just building that now, you know, over 300 people here, but just starting that. Yeah. But I would imagine those, those product marketing teams, they have the advantage of like telling that story about whatever aspect of the mm -hmm. product you're talking about, but they can point back to this category conversational marketing. And so they can use that as like a, uh, a beacon or like a central point mm -hmm. to tie back to and everything they're talking about. And then ultimately the narrative around what you're trying to do, it gets so much stronger because everything is kind of pulling off of the same central story. So I know you advise and invest in a number of startups. Mm -hmm. What, what do you tell them about category design? It's funny now, you know, because of the, what they've seen externally from drift. And when we talk like now, uh, they all, they all want to talk about category design. Category design in B2B has become a very, very, very hot thing. You know, we were trying to explain it early on of like why we were doing it. And I kind of think people thought we were like nuts. And, uh, but now they see that, they see the, the value in it. And so we, I actually spend a lot of time with those companies that I advise and invest in and other ones that are just friends, you know, like uh, talking about category design, how we've approached it, how we would hire for it, how you know, obviously recommending certain books and, and doing all that stuff. And so it's become a very, very big topic. What's funny though, is like, it, to me, it only has to do with the maturity of the B2B SaaS market largely, right? We're, we're finally in this third phase where, okay, like brand matters now and category design matters. And like, but that has to do with like the phase of the market that we're in. Whereas, like you said, in Procter & Gamble and other, all other categories, they've already been dealing with this and, and this is a system there because they've had to, because they're, they're further ahead in that maturity and that 
commoditization of their market. And we're just entering the beginnings of commoditization in our market. And so like now it actually matters. Sure. Yeah. Like if you go back to, uh, uh, minivans that was, they came out in I think the eighties, that was a classic new category in a very like commoditized and crowded space. And now 30 years later, we're, our, our own industry is kind of catching up and seeing how that process can have uh, outsized returns. Totally. So Dave, I want to ask you a question. I ask every guest. Yeah. At least the, those that are up for it. If you would go, if you could go back five years, mm-hmm. give yourself advice, what would you do differently? I have an answer, but this one's a hard for, one for me because I, I'm like dream on living in the present, like weirdly so. So like, I don't ever spend time thinking about the past. (laughs) And I don't actually spend that much time thinking about the future. I'm like, so focused on like, how do I make today awesome in every aspect? And like, that's it. And who knows if there's tomorrow. But um, I, I would say the one thing that I would give my advice on is like, don't learn everything through brute force, aka pain. And that is kind of my biggest learning. I, I learned, you know, I, I kind of think of myself, my career is like, I'm like the Forrest Gump of this, this thing. And so I've like stumbled upon all these like interesting places and people and stuff like that. And then, you know, been able to achieve whatever things I've achieved because of that. But like, but I learned almost everything through brute force, right? Like by like trial and error, be, largely because a lot of what I was trying to learn, I didn't think I could learn from other people because I thought, oh, this is new technology or this is a new space or new thing. And then what I figured out is like, it's not new. None of the stuff that we're doing is new because deal with people at the end of the day. People are the the consumers, the buyers of of whatever we create and the people who help you, there are people inside your organization that help you build it or, you know, there's only people you deal with and all the lessons on people are already known, right? Like we don't have to learn all those (laughs) anymore. We can go back, you know, 400 years and, and read, you know, uh, books. You can go back to ancient Greek philosophy. All the lessons are there. Like, we don't have to learn these lessons. I learned, like most people listening to this, through brute force, which led to a lot of pain and a lot of repeating the same mistakes over and over again until I kind of figured it out. But now I can look back and say, like, study history. Like, all of everything we need to know is already there when it comes to people. And uh, don't brute force it. Don't learn through pain. So recognize that you don't have to learn everything yourself through trial and error. You mm-hmm. see that uh, others have probably been down that path before, sometimes hundreds of years ago, and look to those experiences and, and learning from them rather than trying to always learn everything firsthand. Yeah, it's all, you know, and I look, that's exactly it. I look back, I'm like, the reason I did that is the reason most of us do it. It's like, um, well, one, there's like some, maybe you didn't know, but we don't have that excuse anymore. And I think it's been, it's ego, right? It's like, it's our own ego gets in the way every day. And we think we are a special snowflake or we've got a different thing and like no one could know. And like, it all is ego. And so like uh, battling your ego, though, is a daily, daily problem. What, what I love about that advice is that it's not something that, it's not a tactical piece of advice that would just apply to Drift or just apply to a tech company or a startup. That's uh it sounds like you've spent a lot of time in, in self-reflection, just really thinking about, uh, you know, how to make the most of every day and make the most out of your career. So, 100%. And so I, I hope everyone uh, followed that. Please learn from others. All right. Well, we certainly learned a lot from you today. And uh, before we close things down, Sangram asked me to ask 
all of our guests closing question. And it's this, if you were to leave our listeners with one challenge today, what would you like to tell them? Oh, one challenge. Uh, the one that's helped me the most is to design, a, um, you know, they've all probably heard this, but design a morning ritual, like really design this, this morning. Cause that's the part that we control ritual of things that you want to get done each morning to feel uh, good balance, whatever way that you want to think about it. So that'd be my number one. Number one, design a morning routine. Yes. You might give me a quick rundown of yours. Oh yeah, no problem. It changes all the time because I'm, I'm trying new things. I take things okay. in and I experiment. So uh, largely it's this idea that, that I'm not allowed to touch my phone or any other internet connect, connected device until I do the following. One, read. Two, make coffee, which I do. Three, <laughs> do yoga, right? yeah. meditation. And it's a short practice that I do. And then only then, and usually read uh, or talk to my kids. Right, if they're up at that time, uh, only after I've done all those things am I allowed to then touch some sort of device or get on the internet or something like that. And so just having the, that, that quiet time and that silence and that time for self-reflection, super important for me. Mm, I love it. How, how hard was that? Like, did you have painful. to go through like, <laughs> was painful? Yeah, painful. I added one thing at a time, you know, and then I tried lots of different things, which I, I've left out that I decided weren't for me. And so it's a constant, everyone has their own, don't follow my version of it, like figure out your version of it, yeah. but just iterate on it, just experiment. And uh, you, the best experiments that you can run are on yourself. Good deal. Well, David, thank you so much for everything you've shared today. So much great insights on business, on life, on uh, constantly learning. Really appreciate the time and uh, really appreciate everything you've shared. Thank you so much for having me on again. Sangram here. All right. You already might have heard that I launched my newest book, ABM is B2B. So I want to give you a gift for being a podcast listener for some of you have been listening it for the whole year and a half and, and send me so many messages. So I want to gift you. I want to gift you a copy of the book. I'm not asking you to buy. I'm literally gifting you the copy of the book. So if you text me at 33777 with the keyword ABM is B2B. Simple as that. Text me when you get a chance. Don't don't drive and text like when you stop. It will be in the show notes. So just take a look at it. The keyword is ABM is B2B and text me that keyword at 33777. It will add, ask you for a physical address so I can ship you the book. And I just want to say thank you. I am super excited. Hopefully I can uh, get this book to as many of you who have been a loyal listeners and evangelist of the Flip Platform Podcast. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.